Okay, so here's part two. Um, first of all, I'll be talking about the hippies for very brief um, amounts of time. Um, this is my second time recording this. I deleted my earlier recordings because I realized, wow, I just went on and on. And I wasn't very good at d- doing anything except just reading out loud all of my notes. Um, and I highlighted a big portion of notes. Um Basically, I'm going to just be talking now about how the Teddy Boy style came way before um, the hippies. Um, And I actually didn't highlight this portion, but I think it's important to say that the um, Hipsters, Beats, and Teddy Boys all came out before the hippies. Um, On page 49 in Subculture, um... Lane Chambers has argued that a lot of these subcultures um, were uh, based themselves off of things that were already embedded in black culture and black music as oppositional values, which in a fresh context served to symbolize and symptomatize the contradictions and tensions played out in white youth subculture. So a lot of these subcultures were stealing um, from a lot of people, including the influx of West Indian immigrants that had only just begun. And at their last influence on British working class subcultures, it was felt in the early 1960s, generally articulated through ska, blue beat, and other Caribbean forms. They, um, however, the implications of the potentially explosive equation of N-E-G-R-O and youth culture had been fully recognized by the parent culture and transplanted to to Britain where it served as the nucleus for the Teddy Boy style. This is interesting because the Teddy Boy style was actually the most racist style because the Teddy Boys did not like black people. They did not want them to join with them. And um, they were based um, around interests like with Elvis and Gene Vincent. In the face of what was necessarily a somewhat crude and cerebral appropriation, yeah, that's what they actually say, the subtle dialogue between black and white musical forms framed the trembling vocals, and it was bound, which framed, uh, it was bound to go unheard from the black side. Um, The Teddy Boys, far from welcoming the newly arrived colored immigrants, began actively taking up arms against them. Um, so then we get the group, uh, called the Beatniks. The Beatniks grew out of a literate verbal culture, and they were, um, interested in the avant-garde. But what was interesting about the Beatniks was that they, um, even though you would think, um, especially based on what I talked about in the first part, even though you would think that, um, the more artsy they were, um, and the more, like, look at how smart I am, and... I guess is the best word you would think that that's kind of like what punk is about and that it would drive people away but it actually did a good job in recruiting poor people and um, inspiring them and bringing their artistic lives to um, the forefront an integral part of the secret identity in these groups and in the skinheads were beyond the limited experiential scope of the bosses and teachers. Um, these were a big part of the underground, and the hipsters uh, fixed this as well. Um, 
the hipsters were kind of like the hippies, but the hippies really were just more of the popularized culture. Now, kind of like the hippies, the hipsters are today. Um, today, the hipsters are just a bunch of people who say that they don't like what's popular, but um, they're okay admitting that what they like used to be popular and is actually just um, a resurfacing of different styles. And that what they are doing now is just appropriating those old styles. And so they admit all this process that comes down to, oh, yeah, they all just end up liking the same thing as the popular culture. But the hippies didn't admit to that. They actually kept trying to tell everybody, you know, we are a subculture. We are not a popular culture. We are not a youth culture. We are counterculture. We just believe in drugs expanding your mind. Um, at least the hipsters today will admit that they're not like the hipsters back then. Those hipsters were part of the secret identity just like the beatniks, not the mods or the teddy boys, which would be the um, racist groups that were popular as well, but more popular and um, more popular only for white people. Because of these groups being more underground, that actually helped them in their mind and realistically it did i mean help them be able to accept more people because realistically um they the teddy boys and the mods had a point that they couldn't let a bunch of people in otherwise it would ruin their goals which were to be about race and to be about the white struggle in particular um the hipster transposed um an emotional affinity with soul music and black people. And the so hardcore Soho mod um, that wore shades and stingy brimmed hats wanted to be more esoteric. So they were also kind of snobby like the beatniks, but they were like, no, this is our culture. If we're going to talk about race, we're going to talk about race and I'm going to be separate from you. Um, there was a beautifully intricate system in which values, norms, and conventions of the straight world were inverted. That is the exact thing that keeps all of these subcultures united. In 1964, a mod could say, At the moment, we're hero-worshipping the spades who can dance and sing. But eventually, they would be the white skins with the black masks. They would still try to... Um, be more and more like the subcultures of the black youth, which they sought so hard to disidentify with. Most notably, there is a polarization between the hard mods and the soft mods. Um, this is on page 55. As Stan Cohen observes, the more extravagant mods involved in the whole rhythm and blues camp, Carnaby Street scene, were merging into the fashion-conscious hippies, See what I mean? They're claiming that they're not fascist conscious, but they are. And the incipient underground, the groups that actually do allow more black people with them. While the hard mods would stay separate, just like the Teddy Boys. Um, so this is when we start talking a little bit about the skinheads. The skinheads seem to represent a meta-statement about the whole process of social mobility produced by the systematic exaggeration of those elements within the mod style, 
which were self-evidently proletarian, but a complementary suppression of any imagined bourgeois influences. So the bourgeois influences of the Teddy Boys, that the Teddy Boys were like, I'm going to take this back from the rich white people and only I can. So um, th those kind of things, um, that was totally um, over-exaggerated with the skinheads and the ska fans. And, um, that's why ska and skinheads are related so closely today. Um, Phil Cohen goes on to interpret this transformation in terms of upward and downward options. They were trying to go downward with the bourgeois influences, but the Teddy Boys were trying to go upward. And so, the Teddy Boys were the most about race, but they were probably nicer with their racism. I know that's controversial, I apologize. But they were probably nicer with their racism than the mods because they actually wanted to completely revamp um, the workers' style and personality of the white rich people. And they didn't want to put that responsibility on black people. Whereas the mods, that wasn't their goal at all. Their goal was just to complain about how hard it was for white lower class people and say that it was a lot harder than the immigrants who got a fair chance to come here and got a lot of help and benefits along the way you know um so in order to express a more stringent lump in identity the skinheads drew on two ostensibly incompatible sources and that's why skinheads and ska and reggae um were always so closely intertwined the cultures of the west indian immigrants and the white working class a somewhat mythically conceived image of the traditional working class community with its classical vocal concerns, its acute sense of territory, its tough exteriors, and the machismo, which would later cause skinheads to become more about blue-collar working rather than white-collar working, and they would become more and more like the rednecks, um, the army brats, and more racist groups later on. These values... Um, I'm quoting again. These values conventionally associated with the white working class culture were rediscovered in the black West Indian culture. The skinheads resolved or at least reduced the tension between an experienced presence, the mixed um, poor area or ghetto, and an imaginary past, the classic white slum. So they started to identify more and more with that, just like the mods and the teddy boys. The most conspicuous sign of change, the black presence in traditionally white working class areas, was being used by the skinheads to reestablish continuity with a broken past, to rehabilitate a damaged integrity, to resist other less tangible changes. So they became even more racist than the Teddy Boys. They believed that the black people were actually doing the embourgeoisement, the myth of classlessness, the breakdown of the extended family, and so on. Ian Taylor and Dave Wall in 1976, remember this book came out in 1979, and it, when you read it, you start to think, whoa, this stuff is interesting because we have hipsters today, and you have to, do, you have to read it another time to realize that it's from way back when. It's not modern. Um, there were ideological shifts. Ian Tyler and Dave Wall stressed the further erosion of many pre-war working-class institutions, 
which the skinhead sought to resurrect, citing the collapse of the working class weekend, the bourgeoisification um, of even just doing football and leisure, the sensitization of consumer capitalization, capitalism, and how people would be so sensitive about what they bought because they wanted to be able to not work. They wanted to, kind of like what I'm doing right now, they wanted to be able to stay at home and enjoy the little things in life, including their hobbies, which I'm doing right now, um, rather than, you know, spending so much time at work because they had to work more than other people because they were paid less. So they had to find their hobbies. And then eventually they realized they're so good at their hobbies. Why aren't they getting paid? Why aren't they getting paid to do their hobby? And then college became cheaper and more people started going. And then um, it became more competitive to get a college degree. And now, now it's gotten worse to the point that we are at today, right? Um, so this is just backstory. This is not even to the reading, which will be part three. Um, and the reading will kind of talk about how subculture has kind of made a joke of even the college institution and how there are just going to be more ways to make people stay poor. And even when you find out what your hobby is and you go to college for it, you might still get kind of distracted by something else that you realize you might be better at and then you'll try to pursue that and then that won't go well so you'll go back to your first thing next thing you know you're working in an office doing scammy things like insurance or a call center and you're trying as hard as you can not to go back to work because you want to fulfill your hobbies and get even better so that you can maybe go back to college again and get a doctorate but you know that you were so busy working to try and survive so that you could focus on school that you failed and since you failed it's going to be really hard to get um approval to join those classes again so you might just be forever stuck in this loop of just doing your hobbies but not actually making money from them um that's what's going on it's getting worse um and the subculture of glam rock and david bowie um kind of transcended those class bounds and that's what we'll be talking about next a little bit but first i want to say one more thing about the skinheads wallen taylor mentioned the summer of 1972 when the skinheads joined other white residents to attack second generation immigrants they actually attacked them and it was a crucial date in the history of them the skinheads turned away from the rasta singing of the have-nots and they just wanted to say oh we have not even more um, so, Bowie. Bowie and black culture. There was disco bounce and sugary ballads while glam rock tried to get away from all of that. Um, but it also tried to get rid of the dead or dying subcultures, the underground and the skinheads. Um, funny enough, though, because Bowie also, um, brought back the whole, um, swastika wearing thing that the punks were doing um i i'm bringing these groups up mostly because most of us already know about punk these are the lesser known groups but punk was like safety pins and i didn't really highlight a lot on that because i knew m more about it already so i don't really have a lot of notes on that but um punk was about safety pins you know 
do it yourself. That I spent most of the first episode talking about that. I don't think I need to again. Um, but Bowie um, brought back a lot of the offensive mockery and irony that the punks were doing, like wearing swastikas, wearing safety pins and not safe places such as their lips, going topless, um, putting um, upside-down crosses on things, uh, the Pope's head cut off on a drawing, etc. Um, pictures, uh, earrings with the Queen's eyes blacked out, um, with JFK's eyes blacked out, things like that. But um, they wanted to have a white line away from Sol and Reggae, but they, the glam group got away with not seeming quite as racist because they just, they didn't have the goal of being separate as much as they just felt like they didn't want to impede on the black cultures. Bowie has, in effect, it's on page 61, colluded in consumer capitalism's attempt to recreate a dependent adolescent class involved as passive teenage consumers so he actually made consumerism culture worse even though with the androgyny and the mockery it seemed like it was a subculture and a counterculture he was a good example of the predator in more many more ways than one that we were talking about in part one in the purchase of leisure prior to the assumption of adulthood um, these teenage consumers, rather than being a youth culture of persons who question the value and meaning of adolescence, um, they would question the transition to working at all. Um, so did that actually help? I'm not really sure. It was devoid of any obvious political or countercultural significance, and those messages which were allowed to penetrate the destructive screens were positively objectionable. But, um, he, uh... Even though he patently seemed uninterested in contemporary political and social issues, that's exactly the problem. He wasn't interested in the teenagers that he was preying upon enough. Bowie was responsible for opening up questions of sexual identity, which is a good thing, which had previously been repressed, ignored, or merely hinted at in rock and youth culture. In glam rock, at least amongst those artists placed, like Bowie and Roxy Music, at the more sophisticated end of the glitter spectrum, the subversive emphasis was shifted away from class and youth onto sexuality and gender typing. Although Bowie was no means liberated in any mainstream radical sense, preferring disguise and dandyism, what Angela Carter in 1976 described as the ambivalent triumph of the oppressed, to any genuine transcendence of sexual roleplay, he by extension, and by and those by extension who copied his style, did question the value and meaning of adolescence in a way, just by being next to him. So that goes back to the whole Nietzsche thing, part, um, rule number four, um, that we talked about in the first episode. Glamrock tended to alienate the majority of working class youth because it was just basic. It, it was deconstructing, though, so it made things seem basic to some people, but to other people, the goal was to make things that weren't so basic for the rich kids seem more basic. It was a way of uniting the rich kids to the poor kids. Um, 
and that goes back to um, that idea of the origin is doubtful. The omnibus dubidantum. The lyrics and lifestyles of latter groups became progressively more disengaged from the mundane concerns of everyday life and adolescence. And so here's where I talk a little bit more about punk before we go into part three. Um, punk started to come into play um, when we realized that the skinheads, the reggae and black youth cultures... Um, as well as the glam rock cultures were moving in and out of what their meanings were. They had a mixed love for androgyny, but they also made fun of it. Um, that's when punk came around. Punk claimed to speak for the neglected constant constituency of white lumpen youth, but it did so typically in the stilted language of glam and glitter rock, rendering working classness metaphorically in chains and hollow cheeks, dirty clothes stained jackets, and rap-and-ready diction. Despite its proletarian accents, it was steeped in irony. Um, reggae still attracted punks who wished to give tangible form to the alienation and have more of a spiritual connection. Alright, um, and then a little closing piece on Dread. Oh, no, not yet. We're going to talk a little bit more about that black youth culture first. Um, the mod and skinhead styles had obliquely reproduced the cool look and feel of the West Indian rude boys. Um, and the parallel white ethnicity was defined through contradictions. On the one hand, it centered, however, iconoclastically on traditional notions of Britishness, the Queen, the Union Jack, etc. It was local. It emanated from the recognizable locales of British inner cities, its spoken city accents, and yet on the other hand, it was predicated upon a denial of place. It issued out of nameless housing estates, anonymous dull queues, slums in the abstract. The Black West Indian Rude and Rasta styles, for example, uh, were similar to the characteristic punk hairstyles consisting of a petrified mane held in a state of vertical tension by means of Vaseline, liqueur, or soap. And they were approximated to the black natty or dreadlock styles. Some punks wore Ethiopian colors and Rasta colors and rhetoric began to work in some of the punk groups. I actually bought some punk, um, some Afro-punk stuff when I was trying to buy from... Uh, black businesses, but I have a couple things that I know are okay to wear and some that I don't, especially because they're meant for black men. So I'm waiting to know uh, which black man to give them to to wear, but I'm pretty sure I'm just going to keep them as a decoration because I don't want to appropriate black men. Even though there's a small part of me that's like, I'm a woman, do I get that way to like get away with taking something back? But then I'm like, no. That wouldn't make any sense. Anyway. So then there was the frantic storm and drang of new wave music, partly for reasons of expediency. I'm still reading page 67. In the early days, there was no recorded punk music, and partly through choice, because reggae was obviously rebel music, the more esoteric Jamaican imports were played regularly in many punk clubs and the intervals between live acts. 
Um, these subcultural styles of the black immigrant community were related to a dialectical movement from white to black and back again. Like I said earlier, it runs through rock music and jazz from the mid-50s onwards. The existing musical structure and force has elements put into new configurations. For, extent, for instance, the stabilization of rock in the early 1960s encouraged the mods to migrate to soul and ska because they were tired of romantic ballads and gimmicks. And then the subsequent reaffirmation of black themes and rhythms by white R&B and soul bands contributed to the resurgence of rock in the mid-60s. And um, that goes back to the concept of dread provided this whole new key to the secret language, which were an exotic semantic interior, which was irrevocably closed against white Christian sympathies, which actually added to more racism because black people are just like us. So endure their religions. Um, and um, so, but I don't really care about religion and that denounced black religion. Um, and so black people didn't like the lack of spirituality in the white subcultures. They could, they could agree on the alien essence of anarchy, surrender, and decline, but that was pretty much the only way that they were tied together, and the idea that there is no foreseeable future in Britain, but the white people were just, a, they had enough privilege, and it was obvious that they could mock privilege, but black people had to be hopeful, or they had nothing. Um, it was the punks that turned towards the world, a dead white face, and like Roland Barth, which we talked about a little bit in the beginning, he said that these murdered victims, emptied and inert, had an alibi made out of Vaseline and cosmetics, hair dye and mascara. And they, in the goth movement in the 80s, we saw more and more of that I feel dead mentality still going on today. And it can kind of be seen as an insult to some, but to others, um... It can be seen as people who don't know how else to even showcase themselves without showing their feelings. And it kind of makes fun of white people in that way because that is how white people often are. They have the privilege, including myself, of showing um, their feelings and wearing their feelings on their shoulder. Um, and they're using their privilege... Does that actually help? Or does it give people an excuse to just talk about their feelings too much when not everybody wants to know that? Or does it help? Because um, when I go to work, some of my jobs want me to be okay showing who I am. And some of them want me to cover up. And sometimes I think covering up might actually help more because um, that way it doesn't let anybody else thinks that they get a free ride to just complain all day and and use their style to show too much of themselves anyway um one more person i'd like to bring up andre breton and his book data and it discusses how punk might seem to open all those doors but it was a circular corridor which goes with exactly what i said with dressing up for work um 
Punk was always condemned to act out alienation, to mime imagined conditions, to manufacture whole series of subjective correlatives for the official archetypes of the crisis of modern life. Safety pin, the rip, the lean and hungry look. It explains a past. Trapped in the paradox of divine subordination, like Jeanette, who chooses the fate which had been bestowed upon him, the punks dissembled, dying to recreate themselves in caricature, to dress up their destiny in its true colors, to substitute the diet for hunger, <laughs> to slide the ragamuffin look, which is unkempt but meticulously contoured between poverty and elegance, especially with the glam, new romantic, new wave, all of that. It just kept getting more and more like, I'm going to buy this outfit that looks really fancy but also looks like a costume but costumes are now more expensive because i've commodified it um yeah so it kind of sucks when it does that it found itself again at the point from which it had started a life or in solitary despite the fierce tattoos um and that's what i will close upon even though i am a subculture person i hate tattoos I kind of want one, but I hate them because all they do is show, look at my friends. They're really artistic and creative. I'm so privileged. Oh, look at how much money I have to put body art all over myself. Hundreds and hundreds of dollars for just that little wrist piece. And I hate tattoos because I think it's interesting. People will be like, yeah, look at how artsy and interesting I am. And look at my feelings. Like, do you think anybody cares? And you have all of this, I mean, even if it's just for yourself, great, but think about it. Is your life really in solitary, despite your, the fact that you're showing everybody and forcing them to know about yourself? And um, also, are you really that poor when you're showing the privilege of all of the art that you have on your body? Anyway, that, that argument will come later. Probably in a YouTube video where I'm talking about music and some of the meanings behind certain songs and some of the interpretation I have that is probably completely not based in reality, but I find funny. <laughs> anyway, that's part two. Part three will be on more about the movie and also some short stories I read from Mistresses in the Dark. Thank you.